Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. time we're answering the calling at home it's episode 327 of the down and nerdy podcast i'm james with them and yes comic-con at home has come and gone i'll go through some of the big moments that happened in the second part of comic-con at home and just talk about the event overall what worked what didn't work what we might be looking forward to in the future and things like that plus a little bit of a bonus this week gonna be joined by amalia holm who plays Scylla on Motherland, Fort Salem from Freeform. Yeah, maybe we'll get her to dish on Season 2 just a little bit, and she'll talk a little bit also about the panel that they had at Comic-Con at home and what that experience was like for her. Plus, Winona Earp is back. You know I got to talk about that. And two amazing women headlined big comics this week. Let's talk about that next. It's what we're reading on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is comic book writer Steve Orlando, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Whether you're flipping through pages or thumbing through panels, whatever you're reading on, it's time for what we're reading. And Wonder Woman has a brand new writer and a brand new start, kind of, in Wonder Woman 759 from DC Comics. The recently Eisner award-winning Mariko Tamaki, by the way, doing the writing here, Mikhail Jannon on the art, Jordi Belair on the colors, Pat Broseo on the letters, David Marquez, with that amazing cover that you've seen on our website already. Now, there's a lot of setup in the narration that the story is going to take a look at the idea of justice and who heroes really are and who the heroes are really are, kind of in a manner of speaking. The story itself is very much Diana being Diana, though. I mean, she's got a little bit of spoilers here. She's got a new apartment, almost like a new life sort of thing. And something as simple as buying furniture there was never really that simple in her world, is it? So, of course, you know, she's going to do, she's going to run off, try and save the day, right? And this is going to make you think of a certain villain that's kind of name dropped in the beginning of this book. And you'll find out that, you know, name dropped probably for a reason and seemingly, seemingly becomes the prime suspect in this incident. So when Wonder Woman's called in for another secret mission and... Something happens there as well, and that's where we're left with kind of an interesting crossroads. The ending of this book actually seems more straightforward, but my instincts are telling me, actually screaming to me, that it's not. So, and and you'll understand, the choice of villain I don't think is a mistake here, and and that's not a bad thing either, by the way. It feels like this book actually is serving mostly as a setup for what's going to be coming in future issues than it is actually like the kickoff of a new arc, if that makes sense. So almost like a baseline of Diana as an altruistic hero and the notion that that kind of selfishness can exist sort of thing. And if you're going to be taking a look at justice, I mean, Wonder Woman is maybe the most selfless hero in comics right now anyway, so we'll see what direction that this particular story takes that. Now, Mikhail Jenin draws a beautiful Wonder Woman, and I mean gorgeous. Now, Jordi Belair, though, really brightens those lighter moments with some really vibrant colors. And there's a lot of lighter moments when you're talking about a Wonder Woman book, especially when you're looking at Diana's life. You can have some really light moments there. And that's when Jordi Belair really, really comes out and shines. I'm actually really intrigued by this story. And this issue can't help but put you in a wait-and-see mode, though. And again, not necessarily a good thing or a bad thing. It's just, now this has to pay off. You've set me up, and now I need to know that this is going to pay off here pretty soon. I think it will, though. I have every faith in the creative team, so I'm going to... Keep buying this one with Wonder Woman 759 from DC Comics. I'd give this probably a 4 out of 5. It was a pretty good start. This one I've been looking forward to for a while. It's Captain Marvel number 18 from Marvel Comics. I'll tell you why in a second. Kelly Thompson writing this one. Corey Smith doing the pencils. 
Adriano Di Benedetto doing the inks there. Tamara Bonvillain on the colors. VCs Clayton Cowles on the letters. And Jorge Molina with a great cover that just really stands out. And that's the image that's been burned into my brain ever since I found out that this issue was actually going to happen. Now, Captain Marvel herself, maybe some spoilers here as well. I know I try to do these spoilers free, but i got to talk about some of this stuff. She's taken up the mantle of the hammer of Ronan the Accuser. So Captain Marvel is now the new accuser and kind of embracing her Cree heritage, right? Which she's been kind of, you know, a little hesitant to do over time. Now, while she still isn't completely comfortable with her new role, she's kind of called to accuse someone. I mean, you're the accuser. That's what you do. You accuse people, right? So the evidence kind of appears overwhelming for this accusation. But, I mean, it's not, it's never that simple, right? I mean, if it was that simple, this would be a one-shot. The issue would be over, and that's, we know that's not what's going to be happening here. This particular person, though, that she accuses, when they're revealed, it's definitely a bit of a shock. I don't know how much of a shock it is to the reader necessarily, but it's certainly a shock to Carol, and that's kind of all that really matters, isn't it? So she's faced with a difficult decision and she makes one that would clearly lead the story down a very interesting path. Now, I say that because this could actually impact the entire Empire storyline depending on how long this carries on. I wouldn't necessarily call this a spinoff of Empire. Obviously, the Empire storyline is in this Captain Marvel number 18 story. But I wouldn't call this like your traditional spinoff series because clearly I mean obviously this was set up in Empire number two as well so yeah it's a tie it's a spinoff in a sense but it's not a spinoff and then I feel like this is also going to serve the larger Captain Marvel story after the fact at some point too so I wouldn't call this a spinoff really I will say though as far as the art goes especially shine through when Carol is in her role as the accuser in action, on her missions, especially, I mean, right in the beginning of the book, Captain Marvel finds a way to find that wow moment visually, seemingly in every issue. And this moment definitely does not disappoint for that. So the team of Corey Smith and Adriano de Benedetto really, really, really worked well together with pencils and the inks. And Bond villain's colors, I mean, come on. You, you know that Tamara Bond villain's going to do an amazing job with those colors. To me though, it's the constant state of unease that Carol has that really drives this story forward. You know, on the one on the one hand, you know, the the role of the accuser is is kind of an honor, right? If especially when you're talking about the Cree, but at the same time, you know, she's been kind of iffy on her Cree roots anyway, and now she's got to go do these particular things that Hulkling's having her do and uh, again, there's a lot of unease there, so I was not disappointed by this story at all, and I like that this different direction that they're taking the Captain Marvel character, even if it is in the in the Empire storyline. I think that this fits very, very well. So looking forward to reading more Captain Marvel and heading on to issue 19. Put this one in my pull box as well. I'm going to give this one a 5 out of 5. Actually, really enjoyed where this one went. That's going to do it for what we're reading. Up next, it's time to ERP. Season 4 has started. Winona ERP will talk about it next with plenty of spoilers on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Tim Rozon from Winona ERP on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Let's take a stroll through the garden, shall we? That's right. Winona ERP is back and Season 4 has finally begun. So time to talk some spoilers for this Season 4 premiere episode from here on out. Not going to talk about Episode 2 just yet but the way this episode starts out or one of the moments at the very beginning of this episode just is one of the reasons why I love this show and it was a line by Greg Lawson's character Sheriff Nedley when he looks at Winona when she's you know kind of getting herself together to go after Waverly and he says could you hurry it up it feels like I've been here for like two years and I just lost it just that it's the inside joke that only erpers know sort of thing right so it's like that's one of the reasons why i love this show i mean there's there's good storytelling there 
but the the jokes just land. They know how to land. It's like it's like they know us. They know the audience. They know exactly which jokes are going to land and which ones aren't. And there were just there's too many to list, quite frankly. And, and I I could just sit here and talk about all the jokes in this episode and just it's this is what happens when you get a group together that just really loves working with one another and loves their fans and just has that camaraderie about them and that everything just works. And that's not something you can say about television shows, movies, or a lot of other things for that matter. So that's just one of the things that Erpers love about this cast and this show. But So I, I had to get that out of the way right away. But I'm, that's what's happening right now. you got Winona who was trying to save Waverly and trying to save Doc, too, from the garden. We saw Doc go into the garden after Waverly to try and get her out of there, and turns out it's not really going to be that simple, is it? I mean, he get, he gets her out of the chains, which was great, because that was stressing me out, quite frankly. Seeing Waverly chained up like that, it was stressing me out a little bit. So he gets her out of the chains, but then you see the garden's never that simple, right? They didn't know they weren't alone, either. Well, I mean, they're alone now. I mean, the dude cuts his head off with a with a pair of garden shears, it looked like, which, I mean, it is the garden, right? So it makes sense. But apparently the garden needs to be fed, and it needs to be fed human blood, and that's just, that's weird. It, it's super weird, but you get to see that there's a bit of a transformation as well. That angel blood really does some good stuff. Who knew that it could grow flowers so quickly? I, I didn't, quite frankly. I, I don't know. I, I think that's you know, a weird additive for your garden, but hey, whatever works for you. But I also love the dynamic between Doc and Waverly, which we don't get to see very often, right, right on the show. And Tim Rozon and Dominique Profs Chalkley, I mean, deserve a lot of the credit for that. It's it's just good to see them together a little bit more. I think we're going to see obviously more of that this season, but they've got some company coming up as well. But I'll get to that in a second because Winona is obviously – you know, kind of failing miserably in her attempt to get into the garden. Not necessarily like her fault, right? She she tries, but then she's like, okay, let's let's find out what this whole Valdez thing is because it might lead to another way into the garden. So then I mean I mean we find out that Jeremy's the one that scrawled Valdez on the wall in the first place, right? Before he was snatched up. But we know that Nicole was also snatched up as well, but she ends up getting saved, and she is pissed at Winona. I mean, understandably so, right? But she's not happy. Like, when she finally runs into Winona again, and the first thing she does is punch her in the face. Now, if you watch this episode again, I want you to look at the look on Catherine Bell's face. Like, the disdain when she just punches Winona in the face. It was like the perfect face for punching someone that you're really, really mad at, but is like still family, right? Or is like family to you. Maybe soon to be family. We won't know how that whole proposal thing works out right right away. I don't think. Maybe we find out in the next episode. No pressure, Emily Andros, just saying. But just the way that's another dynamic that I love is the two of them. But you could almost pair anybody together, and I'd love it, quite frankly. So, I mean, there's that, too. But then, okay, so now they're together, and they're going to solve this whole Valdez thing. And, you know, obviously, Winona sold Nicole on the whole endeavor, and she's she's told her why it makes sense. But there's still plenty of stuff that she didn't tell her, like, oh, Peacemaker, gone, doesn't have it anymore. So Nicole has to find that out at the last minute. But they did end up tracking down a Valdez. Just not the Valdez that, you know, we've been waiting for. It's Rachel Valdez. So the younger Valdez. And that means, you know, more trying to figure out what's really going on with this whole Valdez thing. So that they have Rachel. Now they need to go find Mama and find out what's going on with that. And then what was interesting was is that, you know, first we were dealing with demons. Now we're dealing with the like the mutant scientist rise up. Right. You don't get that very often. Mutant scientists on the loose. I mean, you, you could call them zombies, whatever you want to call them. They were rising up, and and that was their... I don't want to say the big bad for the episode, because that's, you know, cheesy, and it's very not Winona Earp. So there, there was just the obstacle that was in the way of, of where they needed to go. But again, not a whole lot 
of success until we see Nicole magically appear without her clothes, of course, magically appear in the garden. And at first I kind of thought that, you know, maybe her and Waverly swapped places, right? And that's how she got in there. But no, if you look at the trailer for the next episode, it looks like they're both in there together. So, I mean, is this a prison that they're in? Is this some sort of weird, you know, in-between world that we don't know about, like some sort of limbo or something? Obviously, there's some sort of puzzle that you need to solve to get out of this thing, but it's not too difficult to apparently get into this place. But, you know, getting out, that's a whole other story. So, I mean, just the dynamics between all these characters, everything that you've been waiting for so long for as a Winona Earp fan And it reminds you why you're so happy every time this show gets saved. I mean, you had to scratch and claw and fight for each minute of the four seasons that you've gotten so far for Winona Earp. And, I mean, bravo. Even when a character like Mercedes comes back, you're happy, right? A character that hasn't really been there from the beginning and you kind of didn't like the whole time, right? You know, it's another character you just kind of grew to love sort of thing, but... Every piece in this show just fits in the exact way that it needs to. And that's a testament to the writing. That's a testament to to Emily Andros and this amazing cast. Tim Rose on the mustache. The stash looking sharp, my friend. I knew you could pull it off in a short amount of time. So that it was awesome to see the stash back up there again. And and even Doc gets more and more witty with each season, right? It's like Winona's rubbed off on him you know, over the course of the years, and and everybody's just right there. But, I mean, we got to find out what's happening with the proposal, right? We didn't exactly get an answer on the proposal. So we got we to figure out what's going on there. We got to figure out, you know, how Winona is able to see Waverly for like two seconds before she doesn't see her again. And, I mean, does she even want, does Winona even want to get into the garden at this point? Because it doesn't look like it's super easy to get out. And that's the big mystery here is what the hell is this garden and what's going on? And that's on top of the whole Valdez thing. And it turns out the two things are connected. So that's going to be a very interesting dynamic going forward. But I got to tell you, I really love, love, love the way this season started. Maybe one of the best starts to a wine owner herb season that they've had since season one. And that's saying something for me. I know you might argue me on that point. Go ahead. I'm not saying any of it's bad, quite frankly. I'm just saying I really, really got a kick out of this season four premiere, and I can't wait to see more. That's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review and recap, quite frankly, of the Winona Earp season four premiere. Up next, we'll be recapping Comic-Con at home a little bit and adding more nerd news into the mix as well. That's up next. I'm James Witham, and this is the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is April Bowlby from DC's Doom Patrol, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. So are we calling it a hashtag bust or what? It's time for nerd news. And really quickly, I wanted to just give my thoughts on Comic-Con at home. And I've seen the stories just like you have. There's a lot of reports saying that it was a, you know, it was a big failure. And the report, I think it was from Variety, talking about the social media chatter being down by as much as 90%. At some points, really quickly, I mean, I feel like whether or not you think this is a bust is all a matter of perspective, quite frankly. Yes, there were things that went wrong, like videos being, you know, hitting the copyright wall, which I'm sure that Comic-Con did not expect, you know, that you get the, the videos to get popped for copyright the second you upload them. Maybe you've never experienced that. I certainly have and have had to go through the whole process. But, you know, that's something I'm sure the Comic-Con folks didn't expect. Uh, the comment sections were off. Maybe that was a misstep, you think, although you, you've seen comment sections from other things. Maybe that was for the best. But quite frankly, I do think it's all a matter of perspective. Like if, if you're someone that's gone to Comic-Con before or you or you typically go every year and you know what it's like, right, then I could totally understand why you would think that this was a bust. But if you're someone that's not able to go to Comic-Con or you're only able to go for a day or you only get preview night, something like that, this is one of those things where I could understand why you'd enjoy this quite a bit. And quite frankly, it was free too, right? And, you know, you didn't have to wait in line forever for exclusives and things like that. There were certainly things that were very, very good about this con. And yeah, we still got some interesting things out of the panels. It's not like there was nothing. And that's the other thing. 
What they were able to do in the time that they were allotted, I think the, they need to be applauded for that a little bit. I think that that's something that, that was kind of taken for granted to get to get stuff, you know, like The Walking Dead to come back to for Bill and Ted, Star Trek, getting those panels and Hellstrom. And I'll talk about some of these trailers here in just a second, but to get some of these things to actually show up in any capacity for a free virtual event is that is an unbelievable task in and of itself, quite frankly. And to put the, you know, the virtual exhibit hall together and all the things that they had to do and, and the way they were, they were able to acquire sponsorships for this as well. And, and big ones too, by the way, and that also matters too. That's still the power of Comic-Con. So while of course there's, it's almost like an apples and oranges comparison, right? Like you can't possibly expect this to even come close to an in-person Comic-Con experience. I think that was unrealistic expectation as far as what happened in the panels. I mean, quite frankly, you know, what kind of, what do you expect sort of thing, right? Especially when certain panels had to be recorded way in advance and they were, and they were pre-recorded. You're losing that audience interaction, which is one of the things that makes Comic-Con so great, but it's not, there wasn't much that they were going to be able to do about that. That's that, that's the thing. It would be hard and very expensive by the way, to put together an event like Comic-Con, do it exactly like Comic-Con, but make it virtual. It also doesn't help when Marvel and DC are deciding to do their own things coming up later on and kind of didn't do much, if anything at all, at this virtual convention. So I think saying it's a success or failure is a matter of perspective because I think like a lot of businesses, like a lot of events during this pandemic, their hands were kind of tied. They knew that they weren't going to get nearly the response that they would get for an in-person event where you've got people reacting things in real time. But you know what? The videos still got a lot of views, especially, you know, in capacity of what those rooms are at Comic-Con. And you also have to figure this out, too. You have to figure that, I mean, these panels can be viewed at any time. I don't, I'm not saying that they'll never take them down, but the sense of urgency also wasn't there as to if I'm not at this panel at three o'clock to start watching it, then I won't be able to get it or I'll miss something. That sense of urgency wasn't there. So I think the judging it by one week almost isn't fair because we have to judge this out a little further because some people might've said, you know what, I'll save it for next weekend. Sort of thing, right? So I think that, you know, in two weeks, three weeks, maybe a month, that is when we'll actually judge what the success or failure of Comic-Con at home was. Because you know what? Some people just don't see the spoilers that we see because we're locked into this all the time. And maybe they decided to save it for another day or they don't care about spoilers and they just wanted to go back and learn more after the fact. And that's okay, too. So judging this event based on certain things that I've seen, don't, I don't think was fair. So I wouldn't necessarily call it a huge success, but I wouldn't call it the massive failure that some are either. So let's take a look at some of these trailers, actually. Well, talk about them anyway. And I want to start, actually, with Hellstrom by Hulu, which is going to be coming out on October the 16th. I'd say Marvel Hellstrom, but it seems like they want to kind of distance themselves from this show for some reason, and you, we, we get to see we get to see Damon, who's played by Tom Austin, and Anna Hellstrom, who's played by Sydney Sydney Lemon, and we get to see them kind of together, pretty much in this trailer, and we get to see Mama, we get to also see Victoria Hellstrom, and of course played by Elizabeth Marvel, and quite frankly, she creeps me out. Like I was legitimately creeped out by Victoria Hellstrom in this trailer, and you see them say in the trailer, like, look. What did you unleash on the world, mom, who's, you know, serial killer mom? That's a fair question, right? And then we kind of get the tease of, okay, well, then here's what she might have released on the world. And you see a few things, right? But nothing is very concrete. It's still very mysterious. So, and I liked that about this. I don't want to know too much about this show going in. Give me, especially this early, give me a little peek of a, of a trailer, more like a teaser trailer, actually. And I got what I needed to see. I really got some, you know, I got some Prodigal Son vibes. If you watch the show on Fox, got a little bit of those vibes. I also got some Outcast vibes. Robert Kirkman's Outcast. I thought there were some similarities 
there to Hellstrom. So, I mean, I got what I I got what I needed to get to show me, okay, this is going to be serious and, and and I'm certainly interested. So, I certainly got enough of that to make me want to see this show. Up next is Lovecraft Country from HBO, of course, based on the novel by the same name. This show going to come out a lot sooner, actually. This one will be out on August the 16th. Not only did they give a give us a trailer right before their panel started, a couple days before the panel started, actually, we also got a sneak peek at one of the scenes of everyone together, which I thought was really, really neat. So it's almost like I can't say what episode it's from exactly. I think it looks like it's from the first or second episode, you know, because you get to see you get to see George played by Courtney B. Vance there. You also get to see uh, Atticus is there as well. And and you get to see them go down in this secret tunnel like area. Right. And that's something that and again, you don't give me too much. And I love that they did not do that. They did not give me too much. I still had to. I still had things that were left to the imagination. And we also didn't, in the sneak peek, get to see about the fact that, you know, they're still dealing with a Jim Crow era America. So we have to deal with that as well. We don't get too much of the mystery of them looking for dad for for Atticus's dad Montrose. We don't get a whole lot of that. But we get to see some of the monsters in the trailer and there's like this Cthulhu looking monster that was for real. And maybe this is the monster that Atticus was talking about uh, this family legacy that Atticus was talking about, right? Maybe the family legacy is, you know, that they hunt down monsters and this is what they do. And I say this as somebody who hasn't read the book, right? So I don't, and I didn't want to go in there having you know with that so i'm actually happy that i didn't see the book and i could just judge this show on being the show but jonathan majors i'm i'm sold man give me more jonathan majors plays atticus on the show i already loved journey smollett by the way from birds of prey but latitia looks fierce right i think what they call her lit right that's what atticus calls her yeah, I am so. Uh, she looks fierce. Take no prisoners. Just that when she slides the glasses down in one of the in one of the parts of the trailer, I'm like, oh yeah, this is going to be interesting. And there seems like there's some manipulation going on here as well. I'm very interested to see where Lovecraft Country's going. This this just feels like another one of those winners for HBO, doesn't it? I mean, so many Emmy, Emmy nominations for Watchmen, and now you follow this up. With Lovecraft Country, I mean, it's, but so now you're going to be talking about monsters this time. Yeah, I'm all in for this. Give me more Lovecraft Country, and we don't have to wait very long. So that's the good thing. We also had a new show that's going to be coming to Fox on October the sixth. So yeah, there is going to be some new t- new fall TV coming up on the networks, and it is called Next. And this is basically about how AI can go rogue and take over. Our lives. I mean, this is not necessarily going to be one of those things where you're going to be want to be talking to your smart speaker after you're watching this trailer that was released at Comic Con. Comic Con, quite frankly, because you've got Paul LeBlanc, who's played by John Slatter, Slattery, and he's the guy that sort of you know invented this world-changing innovation, this technology. And now, I mean, and he also ignored everybody. While he was doing it, he was one of those guys that dove into his work. So now you've got this powerful AI called Next, and you see how many things this AI is just taking over on its own. Imagine Christine, you know, the car that from the Stephen King movie, Christine. Imagine Christine, but taking over everything, not just cars. Obviously, there was something in this where it was taking over a car. But not this particular instance. So there was other stuff as well. I I think there were elevators and you you see other stuff. Basically anything that's connected, that is what they can take over. So, again, I was really, really just, you know, kind of creeped out by this. You know, you're looking at your phone. You're looking at all the stuff that you have connected. Like if something took this over, we'd all be screwed. And it was basically the the AI was doing this because it wanted to wipe out humanity. And I'm like, oh, good. And then once humanity's gone, what what are you going to do? 
you know, just to sit there in your little artificially intelligent world and create what exactly? Who knows? That's one of the points of this series, though, is maybe we'll get to find out what exactly, you know, you always want to know what your villain's motives are. I don't know how we're going to get that in this series, but I'm I'm intrigued to find out, and I'm, I don't mind being a little creeped out. I, I want to know these things. I want to see, you know, what we could be in for in a world where we just kind of accept the terms and conditions without actually reading them sort of thing. So, yeah, next coming up for Fox in October, on October 6th, let me know what that's all about. Quibi drops another trailer at Comic-Con and Home as well for The Fugitive, going to be coming out on August 3rd, so a little bit sooner. You see, you hear the words The Fugitive and automatically, right, you're thinking Harrison Ford, you're thinking Tommy Lee Jones, and it's not exactly that. Yes, it is kind of in the same vein as that, but it's a, it's it's different. That's the bit, That's the only way I can really describe it, is that it's not exactly the same when you when you watch the trailer and you, you've got Kiefer Sutherland who's actually playing the Tommy Lee Jones role in all of this, right? And then you've got Boyd Holbrook, who's playing the guy that, you know, he was a criminal. It looks like he's starting to go on the straight and narrow now. But then something happens in the subway, and he was there. And, of course, they think he was responsible. So the chase is on kind of from there. But here's one of the reasons that I am actually intrigued about this. Not only does the trailer look different and a lot of the premise of this also looks different even though it's like you're using the fugitive as a base and then building another story around it. But you're talking about the co-executive producer of Prison Break that is actually doing this. And as much of a fan as I was of Prison Break and how that entire show was presented, yeah, I'm definitely interested based on that. The trailer had me interested anyway, and but but I was still like, eh, it's still The Fugitive. And then I saw the Prison Break connection. I'm like, well, that might change things a little bit because I definitely loved Prison Break. So yeah, maybe I'll go ahead and check out The Fugitive on Quibi, done by Warner Brothers TV, by the way. The new series from The Walking Dead, The Walking Dead World Beyond, also had a new trailer that's going to be that, that that was released at Comic Con at home. And what you're seeing is basically you know, a group of young people that just decide, you know what? The dead have had this world for 10 years. Enough is enough. Let's go live. Let's, and they, it's basically, they're going to go travel across the country. I think that's the vibe that I got from the trailer anyway. So you, not only do you get some new characters, we get to see more of the world that the dead have taken over, right? And it's sort of like when you have a video game that you played forever, and then all of a sudden you have an open world version of that game, and you can go, oh, that's what everything else out here looked like. That's the vibe I get from The Walking Dead World Beyond. So, and again, you got a young, you got a younger cast, so things just feel, everything felt fresh and new and different. Yeah, you still have got the dead, and you've still got the zombie aspect too, but at least this one feels fresh. It feels different. It feels like they're actually trying to create something new and expand the world that, you know, People have been fans of for years now, so and we'll expect that to premiere on October the 4th. Keeping going with The Walking Dead news a little bit as we move away from the trailers, Fear the Walking Dead will be back on October the 11th, so obviously those two will be airing together at some point, probably on the 11th, actually. As far as the actual Walking Dead, you know, the, the one that started it all, that series is concerned, Season 10 will return August 23rd. They're going to add six episodes to this 10th season. And then the, the not surprise at all was that Season 11 is going to be delayed until 2021. I would say obvious reasons. They should be obvious by now. But I kind of feel like Season 11 was going to be, even though if there wasn't a pandemic, I feel like there would have been the delay to Season 11 anyway. Maybe I'm wrong about that. It just felt like that's the direction that things were going. So, again, I think that, you know, Walking Dead fans, you're going to have plenty to hold you over until then with Fear the Walking Dead and World Beyond, which, remember, is a limited series now. We're only going to get two seasons here. But maybe that will be enough to bridge the gap for us to actually get us to the point where we need to be with the original Walking Dead series. Something very interesting that was announced by Warner Brothers Home Entertainment this week was their first interactive Blu-ray release. The, the, first, the trailer and the information first came out 
from IGN that DC Showcase Batman Death in the Family is going to be released as an interactive experience. With your Blu-ray remote, you can actually choose what happens in this adventure. And yeah, it's you're gonna it's gonna feel like Batman under the Red Hood a little bit because you've got pretty much the same voice cast playing Batman, Jason Todd, and Jason Todd's Robin and Joker. So you've got you've got John DiMaggio back, you've got Bruce Greenwood back, you know, and obviously, so you're gonna get those vibes. There's really no way. To really avoid that, but then you've got the the fact that you can like you can choose whether Robin dies, whether Robin cheats death, or Batman saves Robin, right? You get those actual, you get those choices, and then certain things will happen after it's choose your own adventure, basically. So you've got Vincent Martella, who's who plays Jason Todd, who could also play several different things. In this, I mean, if you look at the trailer, I mean, I think we saw Hush at one point. We saw Red Robin. We saw Red Hood. I, I think there was some other stuff in there as well. So your choices are going to dictate where you go with this. And I think that that's really, really cool and really interesting. And this is one of those things that has some replayability to it, right? I mean, yeah, you could say, well, Telltale did this. But, well, you know, now we bring Jason Todd into the mix. And I know that... People have had been able to decide whether Jason Todd lives or dies before. This is certainly not news, but now you can actually see instant consequences to the decision that you make based on what goes on with Jason Todd. And maybe you go back and you try and do things differently and you still get the same result. Or maybe you get a different result. That's the fun. It's You just go back and you play it again differently and find out what happens. But nothing beats that first time, right, that you play through it, and you're not exactly sure what's going to happen. Like you say, oh, well, Batman saves Robin, and then Robin resents him for saving him for some reason, and that's why he ends up becoming hush or whatever. You know, there's just certain things. That, I'm not saying that that happens, but that's one of those things that, that could happen, right? Like, I didn't need you to save me. I had it sort of thing, which would have been a very Batman thing for Robin to say to Batman's face. It's almost like I taught you well. And then that you could just move on from that and everybody could go their separate ways. But no, I think that this is a really neat idea. I don't think this is something that you want to see them do every time. But for this particular instance, I think it works, right? So if you can find stories like this that, that, that works, then I think that this is something you could do. Plus, this is another perfect way for DC and Warner Brothers Home Entertainment to kind of turn the page on their previous universe and kind of start things fresh. I mean, we, I know we've got Man of Tomorrow coming up not too long from now. This is also another way to do something fresh, something new, something different before they go ahead and launch whatever their next phase is going to be. And however they want that to, to kind of get kicked off, this is a great thing to do in the meantime, and it will be available this fall. It's going to do for Nerd News up next. Speaking of Comic-Con at home, Motherland Fort Salem was represented there. And Amalia Holm will join me next to talk about what was going on with Scylla in Season 1 and look ahead to Season 2. That's up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is William Powell from Siren on Freeform, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, if one show made a big impact at Comic-Con at home this year, it was Motherland, Fort Salem for sure. And how could it not after the way that first season ended? And if you're going to talk about the first season and going into season two, let's get one of the key figures from that season. It's Amalia Holm who plays Scylla. Amalia, how are you? Hi, James. I'm very good. How are you? Doing great. Well, I mean, as great as can be expected in these in these times right now anyway. So... You all actually had your virtual Comic-Con panel this past Sunday. So first off, how great was it just kind of seeing everybody again? Oh, it was so great. I know like it's, it's one of the biggest losses in connection to production due to COVID is, of course, that we don't get to see each other uh, for a while. Uh, so that was just it's easy to tear up just to see the other faces because it's been an extraordinary experience shared. Can't help but love technology and how it gives us a little substitute to the love we're lacking right now. Absolutely. And I know that you love connecting with your fans on social media. There's some great fans of Motherland Fort Salem, but how bummed are you that you actually weren't able to have that personal connection with them at Comic-Con? Well, it, it was to be my first experience, so I don't know exactly what I'm missing, but I've understood that it's major and that it would have been amazing. 
I wouldn't use the word bombed, but I'm going to do that now because I, I don't have that naturally in my vocabulary. But yes, uh, I'm sad to miss it and just to go to San Diego. And I mean, it's the, it's the Comic-Con. So I, I, I can't uh, mourn it too much because then there's, I mean, comparison to so many other things, it's, you know, hard, hard to do that. But I can't wait to get uh, another shot next year uh, when it's all safe for people and to meet all the fans that have been patiently waiting. And I'm so glad that they are staying in touch in social media, trying to bridge the physical gap that we can't really do now uh, due to Comic-Con being online. But what I really appreciate about this year's Comic-Con is that it's much more available because not everyone is able to travel to San Diego Comic-Con. But now um, people will be able to participate and be part of uh, the experience online. So I'm very appreciative of that. That is very, very true. And let's talk about season one now. I'm going to dive into some spoilers here for season one because it was a, it was a major, major season. And Scylla was obviously a big part of the season one finale cliffhanger that everyone's still talking about. So how much do you still think about that final scene? Uh, I mean, it's, to me, Torell's mother is so big to Scylla in ways she can handle or imagine and just that to actually get to see a three cell like um, meeting point or office is also just overwhelming to her. And she she's caught up in between the like the thrilling of being out, but is she really out? And does she dare to believe it? She's so close to death and being shipped off to this prison, and then now she's free and she's going back to see her boss and is getting that information that it's Rail's mom. I don't know how much we can. You can see in, in Scylla's uh, just phase in that moment, but there's a billion thoughts running through her head. Yeah, I, I was uh, shocked and just laughed out loud when I read it the first time and when Elliot kind of teased me about uh, that plot twist. Oh, I saw the expression. It was one of the most awkward meet-the-parents moments ever. <laughs> indeed, indeed it was. And uh, I hope she gets to... Uh, to redo it in a different way. Or maybe it was the, the best meet the parents. No, I don't That's think so. That's true. I'm trying to look at it like from a positive side, but I mean, either way, you probably want to have your loved one there too for the meeting, right? No doubt about it. Let's talk about the relationship with between uh, Scylla and Rayel. Given the fact that, I mean, fans knew who Scylla was and knew that she was Spree pretty quickly in, in the first season. And were you actually kind of surprised at how much people were a fan of that relationship so early on, given the fact that she was, you know, you know, for lack of a better term, one of the bad guys? Yes, I think so. On the other side, I didn't think that much if they were going to be a pro or against uh, them as a couple, because I just thought that they're a match made in Salem, in heaven in one way, because it's just they, they are very able to fulfill exactly what the other person is lacking in their lives. I mean, not, not proper safety yet, and they're still very young and all that and they're in weird situations but there's something that they just give each other that I feel like no one could give to them like specifically as uh, the characters and people they are and uh, Silva being an antagonist you know she never was to me so I was just hoping that she wouldn't be too hated the fact that Rael falls for someone who's dangerous in that way like you said right and that's also a bit tricky, morale-wise, that Brielle doesn't know. And Stella can't really tell her for many reasons. Mm-hmm. So to Brielle, she's just kind of mystical or fun and rebellious. Unfortunately, there's a uh, uh, darker sense to that, obviously. So Scylla clearly does end up falling for Rael, And you can just see that happening throughout the season. It's a beautiful thing. And I believe that that Scylla at one point t- told Anacostia in one of the episodes that the spree gave her something to live for, or something along those lines. So would you say that her reason for living has actually changed and therefore maybe her loyalties as well? Yes, I think that's a very, a very correct observation of what's happening in Scylla. I mean, it's, it's, it may not be that clear that it's just like um, 100% switch, but there is absolutely a new meaning to her life. And she had one thing to live for before. And part of that was the, you know, the dark sides of a kind of sense of revenge, whereas now there's a light in her life. And I think that if she just lets that grow, she'll have a much better life and a stronger will to live than if you just live for revenge that's not very long lasting 
Talking to Amalia Holm, who plays Scylla on Motherland Fort Salem, season one, available now. On Go to the Freeform website, also on Hulu if you want to stream the full first season. And season two, of course, coming soon. Now, Amalia, we know how Rael reacted when she thought that Scylla was dead in season one. We saw what happened with Rael in the finale. So, kind of tease for us a little bit how you think Scylla might react to that, given how they left things when they last saw each other as we go into season two. I think that no matter what what Scylla knows about Rael's state, she'll never really give up on her. And therefore, if she were was to be told that Rael is dead, which she wouldn't accept, well, she wouldn't accept it, I guess, because, you know, she's a necro as well. She doesn't think death is so cut and dry. I don't personally at that they're dead because of that power walk Rael and Abigail do in the, at the end. So if Phil was told that Rael is dead, she, I think she'd have a kind of similar reaction to what Rael had. She wouldn't really believe it and she would refuse to, to accept it. Um, at the same time, being a little older than Rael, which is like one year, uh, but especially being a necro, I, I don't think she would be as sad because she wouldn't really accept it. And I don't know how healthy that is, but in this world, the world of motherland, death is a little bit more complicated. So I think she would be angry, sad, and determined to find out what's happening to Rael and not accept her death, really, um, no matter how she left her. She said, I chose you, and she's still choosing her. No doubt about it. One of my favorite scenes, Amalia, from season one was when Scylla realizes that she's eating glass when she's in, when she's in captivity and she just kind of spits it out and she smiles. I was like, oh, that is that is a bad move right there. So did you have a favorite scene from season one? Oh, well, that's, that's one of them. It's so hard to decide one, but that was so much fun, too, especially because it was with the amazing Lynn Renee and Demetra McKinney and um, the wonderful actors who played the biddies as well. So it was just, such a fun day on set and to play around with that morbid humor of Scylla regarding the torture and how to deal with that and to use humor as a defense mechanism and also she she's very and she's so intimidated by General Alder someone who's been her antagonist or like yeah since, since she was a child it's the one person um, that's described to her as an equivalent of like the darkest lord yeah, that was so much fun to play with all those nuances in that scene. So I, I think I have to go with you on that one. I mean, it's 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 tough to, I mean, there's a lot of them, but that, that one just really, really stood out to me. I was like, oh, I didn't know how tough she really was. Now I know how tough she is for sure. And looks like she's going to need to be tough, though, because it looks like there's a new threat coming for season two, maybe after the way that season one ended. So do you feel like the Camarilla are a big enough threat to possibly unite the army and the spree at some point, in your opinion? In my opinion, I think so. But that's also because I'm I'm relating to and feeling empathy for Scylla's idea of what the spree stands for, which is to let all witches be free. Camarilla are definitely a, a big threat to just the existence of witches at all. So... And facing that, I definitely think that the Spree and the Army should join forces, and I think that they can, like, they can complement uh, each other uh, greatly. Spree with the very, also because society still sees Spree as the bad ones. So depending on how the Army uh, are open to use that and accept their cause and accept their analysis in some way, and it might not be, it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be like the Army will. Um, tear themselves down right away, but I, I I hope and think that they, that can be could be a, a common goal in that in fighting for Maria because they are definitely uh, the biggest threat in that world. You know, we actually saw maybe a little tease of what that could be like at the end of last season because one of the dynamics that I didn't expect to love as much as I did was the combination of Scylla and Anacostia. I mean, the more and more I saw them as the season went on, the more and more I was like, this just works out so well. So I know the finale was a bit of a tease, but might we see a little bit more of them together in season two? That's what I'm hoping for. Uh, I love her, Nature McKinney, uh, who plays Anacostia Quartermain. She's so um, funny, intelligent, and dynamic to work with. And we just, we both, we both have a very similar way of working. And therefore, um, I feel like we can just jump off each other in the work and we can try out new things and 
yeah, be very playful around it, even though, be, I mean, I feel like we can be playful around it because we take it just as seriously, both of us. Sure. So I, I really hope so. I love the dynamic between Selena and Acosta as well. And uh, for them to find their similarities, I would hope for them to really get on each other's backs again, like they were in like episode five or Anacostia has been on to Sola from episode one, really. I don't think that can be totally forgotten, but I love the friction between the two of them. Oh, I do too. No doubt about it. That was one of the things I loved about that for sure. Before I let you go, Amalia, obviously no one wanted to real, reveal too much about season two, even in the panel. And I'm sure you guys don't even know, you know, too much about what's going on in season two. So I'll phrase it this way. What's your biggest hope Priscilla in season two? This is such a hard question because kind of stay off hoping things for my character. I mean, I, I hope things, I love doing action scenes and stuff like that, but in the same way, I, I don't own Priscilla's future in any way, and I'm not a goal-setting person myself, so to do that for Priscilla doesn't really come natural to me. So um, just say that my hope would be that she gets to hold on to a purpose, uh, really formulate a purpose of living for herself and get some answers to answers to some questions, get to grow and uh, experience love with Freyal. Yeah, that's a clear hope. I, I hope she gets a worthy <laughs> reunion with Freyal in some way. And we'll all get to find that out at some point when Motherland Fort Salem Season 2 returns to Freeform. Of course, once that date comes out, I will make sure that I pass that along to you. But for now... You can watch and rewatch season one. Go to the Freeform website, the Freeform app, also on Hulu as well. Stream all of season one to get yourself ready for season two, and you'll see a lot more of her as well. It's Amalia Home. Thank you so much for joining me this week. Thank you for having me, James. That was a lot of fun, and thank you for great questions. I loved so many things about that conversation, but I really, really loved how Amalia talked about the relationship between Scylla and Rael because, I mean, just the sheer emotion of that relationship throughout the first season. Can you imagine what season two is going to be like? I don't know how long we're going to have to wait, but it's going to feel like torture because Motherland Fort Salem season two is going to be amazing. Can't wait to see that on Freeform. Also, you can watch the first season on Hulu, the Freeform's website and app as well if you like. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to Amalia Holm for joining me this week and the folks at Freeform as well. Make sure you visit us on social media at Down and Nerdy 757 on Twitter and on Instagram and at Down and Nerdy on Facebook. You can always find out more from us and my interview with Jessica Sutton, by the way, from Motherland Fort Salem from earlier this season at downandnerdypodcast.com. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds.